This episode is number 68, Debunking Myths Around Sexual Violence, with a public health professional, Haley Adams. I do want to give a brief disclaimer about this topic. So I know this is a mature topic, but I asked my friend to come on because she is somebody who did assemblies and in-class presentations for middle schools and high schools in Utah. I wanted a professional who had done this many times to help me. And I know this is a scary topic, and sometimes we don't want to talk about it. But the more we understand it and are educated about it, the less scary it becomes and the more we feel empowered. If you're a little unsure, if you should be listening to this topic, please let your parents know and listen with them. This is a great episode to listen to with your parents and have a discussion with each other about it. Welcome to Becoming, a podcast for teens and young adults, where together we are becoming more than we are and who we were always meant to be. We are your hosts, Tawny Beardall and Erica Peterson. Each episode will feature different topics to enhance your growth, help you see the world differently, and discover who you really want to become. Today, I have one of my very favorite people in the world. My dear friend that I grew up with, Haley Adams, is going to be sharing with us today. Haley, welcome to Becoming. Thanks, Erica. Thanks for having me on. So Haley, you have such a cool education background and have some really great experience. Um, Will you share with everyone a little bit about your education? You did public health and also your work experience. Yeah. So I did, I got my bachelor's at BYU in public health. And at the end I had to do an internship and I ended up doing it with UCASA, which is Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And from there, I worked at the Rape Recovery Center in Utah, where I was on their education team. So I would go to middle schools, high schools, and college campuses, as well as church groups, and just do presentations, just kind of like debunking a lot of the myths surrounding sexual assault and sexual violence. So this is why you're perfect for this. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what, what sexual violence is, what some of these things even mean. What is the difference between rape or sexual assault, sexual violence, what, how do we define that? So rape is considered forced sexual intercourse and sexual assault is unwanted sexual contact of any kind. It really doesn't matter what you call it, but basically just unwanted sexual contact. Yeah. So some people use the terms interchangeably. And next I want to start talking about like, what is consent? I think it's important to know like what consent looks like so we can know if we are consenting to sexual activities or not. How do you know whether or not that's actually consent? Because I know a lot of people may interpret this differently. Yeah, absolutely. Consent is when there is enthusiastic participation. So in order to really know that someone is consenting to the sexual activity, it should be very clear. And then also you have to be able to feel like in order to consent, you have to be able to feel like you can also say no safely. A yes that is freely given is when the option of no is also present and viable. A lot of times people feel coerced into consenting to sexual activity. And if there's any kind of coercion going on, then that is not okay. Do you have some examples of what coercion looks like? Yeah, so there's different kinds of coercion. Like one is persuasion. 
So like someone might say like, I know you've had sex with lots of other people or any way that they're trying to persuade you. Um, another is guilt. Like I gave up going out with my friends to hang out with you. So you should do X, Y, and Z with me. Pressure. We've done it before. So we should like, why can't we do it again? Blackmail. If you don't, I'll tell everyone that we did it anyway, or I'll tell everyone X, Y, and Z about you that you may not want people to know. Power. Um, you should be honored. I'm super awesome. I'm a quarterback. I'm a cheerleader, whatever, you know, just kind of using some kind of power over you. Threads. If you don't, I'll make your life miserable. So all these things, if any of these things are used, then, and a person feels like any kind of pressure or coerced into doing that activity, then that's not consent in the eyes of the law. That's important to kind of recognize that you should be able to say no and not be feeling that that's going to result in a bad outcome. So Absolutely. Yeah. And then there's also exceptions to consent. If you're under the age of 14, you cannot legally consent to sexual activity under the age of 14. Also, those involved in relationship, relationships of institutionalized power, so people that are doctors, teachers, therapists, clergy, they cannot get consent from anybody that is under their power. So doctors can't have sex with patients, teachers with students, therapists with clients, clergy with the people in their congregation. So no matter what age that person is, that's breaking the law. Those people are all in a position of power, so you may not feel safe saying no to these people because they have some kind of power over you in your life. Hearing it kind of in that way makes so much sense. And it, a lot of times we think like, oh, that's not allowed. But, but when you understand that really isn't able to be a safe relationship, you have these positions that you have. And part of that is holding the maturity to not continue relationships beyond you know, a professional setting. And so that's why those, those are in place. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and then also mentally disabled persons or persons temporarily disabled by alcohol or other drugs also aren't able to consent. So this is a really big one, especially for people that are consuming alcohol, because if you wanted to engage in sexual activity with someone that was drinking alcohol, you have to get their permission before they start drinking. This happens all the time where people are drunk and then engage in sexual activity. If the person doesn't clearly remember and know that they said yes to those activities, they could say that you raped them and you don't have any. Yeah. Any evidence against that. Yeah. So that's why it's like important that people are in like the right mental state before you do those things as well. Um, so you have to make sure there's not like drugs and alcohol that would be impairing their ability to make decisions. When you're younger and you can learn these things now, this is going to set you up for success in the future because you can really protect yourself on both mm -hmm. ends of the scale. You need to know this information. We live in a world where that kind of information is taken very seriously now. You really do have to be careful and understanding this is a big part of protecting yourself and protecting any interactions that you might have with somebody in the future. So, Yep, definitely. So there's a ton of myths around sexual violence, and this is what you did was kind of debunk some of these myths, and mm -hmm. I would love to hear some of those. I know we have lots of misconceptions surrounding sexual violence, so what are some of those myths that we need to debunk? 
Okay, so myth number one, most rapes are committed by strangers in the dark of night and out of the way places. Um, I know before this is basically how I thought that they usually happened. What I didn't know and what's actually facts, the facts are 90% of victims know their perpetrators. Perpetrators may be fathers, teachers, grandfathers, other family members, friends, and people we know and trust. That's kind of makes it tricky because you assume it's going to be like this scary person. We kind of have an idea in our mind of what a rapist looks like, but we don't picture what's like the norm. We don't picture grandfathers. We don't picture teachers. We don't picture an older teen cousin when usually these are the perpetrators. That's what they actually look like. Yeah, they're just normal people. Yep. Yep, exactly. So basically what I'm trying to say is like it could be anybody. Yeah, you can never be too trusting or, I don't know, you just always have to be on guard because that's typically who the perpetrators are. Okay, myth number two, victims of rape ask for it in quotations. They provoke an attack by their behaviors, attitudes, and clothing. This is a, yeah, this is a big one because a lot of times people, when they find out about, um, you know, someone getting sexually assaulted they always want to put the blame on the victim. Like, well, what was that person wearing? What was that person doing? Clearly they must have like wanted it. When in reality, like it takes a rapist for a rape to happen. Like if you take a rapist out of the equation, that rape doesn't happen. That stops it right there. So like nothing that they're doing is provoking this. This isn't something like that's behavior, their Mm -hmm. behavior triggers any of this. This is something that is out of their control, really. Yep, absolutely. And I'll probably go in a little bit more about that. But one thing I do want to say is, you know, a girl may want to dress sexy, like going out at night with friends. Let's say you want to dress sexy. You're hoping to hook up with somebody, but you still want to have control over who you hook up with and what goes on. Like, just because a girl dresses sexy does not mean she's hoping someone comes and takes advantage of her. Exactly. So it's just funny that we, like, put this on victims all the time, that they must have been doing something or wanting this to happen when that's just not the case at all. That has to do with just not being educated and understanding, really, the motivations behind it. And so I think that's a big part of why we're talking about this, because that's just something culturally and humanly we are wanting to find a reason for some of these actions and it is not the victim's fault and there's nothing that they're doing that's causing this to happen rape is a crime typically motivated by desire for power and control not a not a desire to have sex because um this is just about like dominating and controlling another person when they take advantage of somebody like okay i'll go let's go to the next myth actually okay that will help so the motive for rape is sexual. Rape is the result of either uncontrollable sexual desire or sexual deprivation. When in reality, there's no such thing as uncontrollable sexual desire. We all have choices we can make every day, and everyone has the choice to not commit a sexual crime. That's a choice that everybody has and a clear choice that you can make. There's no such thing as being out of control to the point that you can't stop yourself. A good example of this is a lot of the people that are targeted are young children and elderly people, surprisingly. So if it was all about like sex and like someone was like so sexy, you couldn't stop yourself, children and elderly people wouldn't be the target of those things, right? Right, exactly. 
And then another example of this is most men that are assaulted are assaulted by heterosexual men. Yeah, so, so it's really like, not based out of their actual sexual deprivation or sexual desire. Yeah. It's just out of that power and control. Yep, absolutely. Okay. And then, okay, let's move on to the next one. So myth number four is men can't be victims. When in reality, one in five boys will be assaulted before the age of 18. We think men are like strong and they could fight back if someone tried to do something to them. But in reality, anyone can be vulnerable in the face of a violent assailant and especially people under the age of 18. And I think the same goes for the myth that women can't be the perpetrators. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's go to the next one. So myth number five, women falsely accuse men of rape. Actually, this happens very, very rarely, as low as 2% of the time. But 90% of rapes do go unreported. And a big reason, if you think about it, like what usually happens to a person after they report that they've been raped? Usually people question them and maybe don't believe them. Yep, exactly. And so that's a huge fear for people. Plus, it's like people feel very ashamed. They often think that they did something to cause this to happen to them. So they don't want anybody to know that this has happened. That's important to know that like people don't go around claiming this happened if it didn't. It's very, very rare that someone would ever say something happened when it didn't. That means that when people tell you, you can believe them because almost every time they're going to be telling you the truth. And I know you have another myth to go over, but I wanted to go over really quickly a little bit of, about what you did in the advocacy program when you went to help victims that were in the hospitals right after being raped, because I think that that shined a lot of light for me onto the mentality of a rape victim after they've been assaulted. Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing is like, most of the time they feel somewhat responsible for what happened. They feel like they did something wrong. Even I remember hearing someone's grandma had answered the door and a man was at the door and he came in and assaulted her. And after that happened, she told her granddaughter, like, it's all my fault. And she was like, Grandma, how could you even say that was your fault? And she's like, well, I shouldn't have opened the door. You should be able to freely open your door when someone knocks at it without being assaulted. Even in like a situation like that, that of course you would think that that person would never blame themselves. They do. They blame themselves for what happened. Yeah, it's important to try to make people feel like empowered and let them know like this is absolutely not your fault. And we'll talk more about like how we can respond when someone turns to us if something like this has happened to them. So yeah, great. All right. So the next myth. Okay, myth number six, if a person doesn't fight back, they weren't really assaulted. This is a really big one. Um, a lot of times we think of like the flight or fight response when we're in difficult situations. But when it comes to sexual assault, most of the time victims freeze. This is as automatic as the response to fight or flee and may keep the individual safer than other alternatives. Yeah, people just like freeze up. And that's why like in dating, it's so important that there's enthusiastic participation because if you're thinking like, oh, we both want this to happen, but you're not checking in with that person, they might be feeling super uncomfortable and freezing up while you're thinking everything that's going on sexually right now is just fine with her because you're not getting a no response. So yeah, so sometimes people freeze up when they are in situations that they might be scared in. So, and also I want to say that the person does not need to use or have a weapon to commit a sexual assault. Um, Oftentimes that's not the case. So 
Yeah. And that goes back to kind of those examples of persuasion, like even just language is all the threat that somebody needs to use, just the fear of what will happen if they don't agree. Often in these kinds of cases, there is so much manipulation that goes on. People are completely manipulated into doing these things by their perpetrator. Perpetrators are really good at what they do. They know what they're doing. They know how to get what they want. And so there is a lot of manipulation too. And that's why a lot of times a weapon doesn't even need to be used because they manipulated the person to the point that they think that this is okay or maybe even normal. This like stuff blows me away, honestly. I just keep feeling so bad for anyone who's been in these situations. Yeah. And maybe this might be a good time to point out too that this happens under the age of 18 happens to one in three girls and one in five boys. It's happening a lot. It's happening really often. And um, yeah, it's scary that that's, that's how it is in our society today. What are some other things around sexual violence that are so common in our society that we really need to kind of educate our listeners about as well? Yeah, our culture today, there's such a rape culture. It makes me really sad when I see what's portrayed as normal on media today. Um, one big thing is like, what, what does our culture, Erica, say like makes a man a man? Oh, like tough, money, like strong. Like, exactly. Yeah, a lot sense. of times there's like this tough guy who's aggressive and um, sexually appealing to women, powerful. And then, so we see that men are often portrayed as that, but then like, what do we see women portrayed as in like media today? Well, always very objectified typically, but you know, a lot of times they're a little more vulnerable or. Yep. I think like one thing that like makes me so angry every time I see it is like you're driving behind a car or often a truck and you see like a silhouette of a female without clothes on. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Women are seen as like decorative objects, eye candy, ready to be consumed, sexually available, submissive to men, vulnerable. Yeah. So we see like women and men are portrayed so differently in the media. And also it just perpetuates that rape culture. Um, so um, I also want to include some, if you think about like the media there is so many examples of women getting objectified. So objectified basically means like we're treating them as like an object to be consumed, not like a, a human being. Um, so one example I want to give a few years back, and maybe we're dating ourselves, Carl's Jr. commercials. Oh, yeah. You know, with like the sexy girl eating the hamburger. Literally has nothing to do with eating a hamburger. I mean, usually I wear clothes after I go through the drive through <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, I'm not, I don't really wash cars in my swimming suit while I eat a hamburger. Like, no, that doesn't really happen. But we see all the time, like examples like this, it has nothing to do with the product and every, it's just using it as a way to like get more attention. But the problem is it's objectifying women in the process. And there's so many examples of this. Like if you think about like lyrics to different songs we like, Anyway, there's so many examples. All you have to do is basically like look at your phone and you'll see like so many examples, which makes me really sad that that's happening. Those things are just surrounding us at all times. Yep. Yep. Okay. And I also want to touch on the porn industry because this is a really big one um, for why women are objectified as well. 
Um, so there are three consistent themes in heteronormative pornography. And they are, one, all women want sex from all men at all times. Two, women naturally desire the kind of sex that men want, including sex that many women find degrading. Three, any woman who does not at first realize this can be turned on with a little force. So these are the consistent themes in pornography. Literally shocking. And I want you to know that 90% of pornography videos, it contains the man, like very dominant over the woman. Really sick and sad that that's the case. But yeah, women are degraded and objectified a lot in pornography. And I also just, like, I have a friend, a really good friend who was just telling me, she was talking to her guy friend who considers himself like a feminist. And he is very liberal and he cares a ton about women's rights or just people's rights in general. Um, and he was telling her that he's like a big feminist and, you know, he wants things to be equal for women. And then she asked him, how do you reconcile your pornography use with these views you have as a feminist? And he literally was silent. And she said for 30 minutes, he tried to think of how he could reconcile those two things. And he couldn't because he realized caring about women's rights and viewing pornography completely go against each other. Oh, I love that example. And I, in this day and age when we're trying so hard to really recognize the power of every person, that's mm -hmm. a huge part of the problem. And so I think that's really powerful. And I appreciate her sharing that with you because that's something yeah. that probably stuck with him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, anyway, Erica, I know a big reason why you wanted to do record this podcast is because of something that went on in your community. So unfortunately, the reason why we kind of felt like we should share this topic is because locally at um, the high school in my town, we had a recent incident where a teacher was sexually abusing a student. And it's been so difficult for our community to really understand the situation. He was a well-respected teacher and coach. Nobody understood how this could happen. And I feel personally connected to this in another way too, that this same scenario happened when I was in high school. I had a teacher and a coach who did this same thing and no one really talked to me about it. And this person was my coach. And I just always felt like so confused about the situation because it didn't seem like something that ever was explained what was going on. I didn't feel like there was any closure to the situation. So would you maybe help us kind of understanding what is going on in these types of situations. I know this happens all over the world where these people in these positions are targeting children and students and even maybe they're adults, but these teachers or whatever, what, what is going on in these situations? Yeah. So it's called grooming and grooming is befriending and establishing an emotional connection with a child and sometimes even the family to lower the child's inhibitions with the objective of sexual abuse. Yeah, so it's, it looks a little different than also what you would think of um, because sometimes like there's not like any kind of resistance at all because the victim has been manipulated by the perpetrator. It was really shocking because he didn't fit the profile of what we would expect a perpetrator to look like. He was, you know, like you said, a teacher, a coach, a husband, a father. We really think like people that seem to have life together would never commit a, a shocking crime like that. A big portion of the confusion, I think, has been because that profile 
seemed so different. I think there was a lot of that questioning and trying to wrap our heads around why this ever came about. And so I think that's where I'd love for you to touch again, maybe on that victim blaming or questioning of the victim's intentions where, especially like you said, it may seem like there's not any resistance because they've been manipulated for so long. But why do we even do that? Why is that even something that happens? I honestly think that we often blame the victim. So like in a situation like this, you're like, well, how, like, how could that even happen? Like, what did the girl look like? What did she flirt with teachers? Things that like literally don't make sense at all that you would even ask in a situation like this. Um, but I honestly think we victim blame so much because we want to feel like we have some control over not being a victim ourselves. Does that make sense? So like if we can pinpoint like this person did X, Y, and Z, and that's why they were a victim. And if I don't do those things, then I won't be a victim ever. When in reality, like we don't have control over those things. People are victims. They're taken advantage of. There's nothing they did or didn't do. They were a victim. They were taken advantage of. Someone manipulated them. So I just want to point out again, like it is never the victim's fault. Like that is so important to remember. Like this person is called a victim for a reason. It is a hundred percent the person's fault who chose to rape, but there's thousands of decisions that are made by the perpetrator. It's not like a one-time couldn't control themselves situation. Like no grooming takes place. Secret meetings take place. Like there's so many decisions that lead up to that. So it's just really not fair to ever blame the victim. That's 0% their fault. They were doing what they felt like was best to keep themselves safe in a very uncomfortable and difficult situation. And we should never judge them for how they chose to do that. I have never been in a situation like that. And I, I don't think I have any space and neither does anybody to ever judge how a person handles that very awkward and uncomfortable situation. So how... Can we respond to somebody who has been a victim? If somebody comes to us and lets us know that they've been abused or tells us about something that happened in their past, how can we be more loving? How can we really help and not ignore the situation? What should we do? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the biggest thing to do is say, thank you for telling me. I want you to know that I believe you. So many times people are so afraid to tell anybody because they feel like they won't be believed. So letting them know that you believe them. Also, let them know that it's not their fault. Like you may feel like you did or didn't do something that caused this to happen, but I want you to know this is absolutely not your fault. And also, I think, you know, I would probably just respond like, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I'm really sorry that this happened. I think it's also important. Sometimes we want to like do what we can to help them. We're like, okay, let's go see the police. Let's go see a therapist, like jump on all these things to do to help these people. When what's happened is they've had like so much of their power and control taken away from them in these situations. And the most important thing we can do is to give that back to them by empowering them to make these decisions. So maybe you could present options like, what would you like to do from here? Like, is there someone else you'd like to talk to about this? Would you want to go forward talking to the police? Would you want to see a therapist? What do you think would be like the best course of action? And let them choose what they feel comfortable doing in that situation. As we don't want to feel like now we're coercing or pressuring them to do X, Y, and Z to get help. We need to give back their power and control by letting them make 
the decisions that they feel like would be most helpful for them. That's very practical and easy to remember because Mm -hmm. so many times when we're presented with any trauma, we don't necessarily know what to do. And especially this, this is a heavy thing. If you hear about somebody going through this, it feels heavy and big Mm -hmm. and like you should know what to do. So I think that that is such a helpful tool. And I hope Mm -hmm. that we can remember that because hopefully you know, you won't have anybody that we know go through this, but it is pretty likely when you hear about the statistics, hopefully you can help somebody if they do come to you and hopefully they feel safe enough to talk to you and then you can help give them those options. I think that's so perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it okay if we quickly talk about bystander intervention? So, yeah. Yeah. Just a couple more things that we can end, but I do want to say in the case of your local high school, I remember after it happened, so many people saying like, Oh, I saw this happened, like, I thought that there was like a weird relationship there. Like, I thought something was off with that. But nobody went forward and confronted or did anything. And I think it's so important to remember, like, if you see something, say something. Because it's so much better to be wrong than to just like, let it go on, you know? One thing I always think about, like, if a child or teen is uncomfortable or too comfortable with an adult, that should raise some red flags maybe beyond just their parents. Otherwise, you know, if there's something, if they're uncomfortable or too comfortable, I think maybe you should, you know, confront and see, make sure that nothing's going on that shouldn't be going on. Yeah. And I know that we're talking like the word child seems like, oh, little kids, but teens are in that category. You are underage. And truly, you know, this, these positions you may experience even as an adult. So even if you are 18 and are Mm -hmm. out in the world, you can experience this in college. You can experience this in work situations. Mm -hmm. So these things, yes, like teens are very grown up and have lots of power and have lots of knowledge, but any adult who is taking advantage of that relationship or being too comfortable they're adult enough to know that they don't get to be in those comfortable situations with kids. They don't get to make those positions too close for comfort. And they are the ones who are responsible for that. So Mm -hmm. yes, teens are in that boat, not just young children. These are any person who is in a position that is a position of power or any person who is taking advantage of those relationships the best way to really find out maybe is just to approach the person who you think may be in that situation or to tell a trusted adult um, and just let them know what you saw and talk through it. Yep. Yeah. Cause teenagers often, they have eyes and ears where adults don't. And I think bystander intervention is really big for them. Like if they see something that makes them uncomfortable or they feel like something could be a little off, it goes for everybody. Like if you see something, say something. It's much better to be wrong than to be right and then I've not done nothing, like I said. We do have parents that listen. What can parents do to help prevent and prepare their, their teens? Um, I think the biggest thing is to just have like an open dialogue about these things. My children are young. Like my oldest child is six. I ask her regularly if anything has happened that's made her uncomfortable. And I specifically have talked about like how we don't let people touch our, she calls them potty parts. So that's what I call them because that's how she identifies them. When I ask her regularly, I especially, I check in every few months, but especially after family reunions, 
Um, anytime we're together with a bunch of friends and I don't have eyes or ears on her at all times, like I'm always kind of checking in regularly asking about these things. But they know that you're a safe person to go to um, when these scary things happen, they're going to feel more like they can come to you. You know, you can't prevent everything that's going to happen to your children, but you can prepare them and be there for them when things do go wrong in their lives. I think it's just really important to ask, just like ask and ask regularly and ask often and let them know I'm here for you. If there's anything you ever need, please know that you can come to me. So I guess the last question I have is what should somebody do who is a victim is even feeling like nothing's happened yet, but they're just feeling uncomfortable with the relationship or something like that. What should they do? I'm so glad you asked that. You know, tell an adult that you trust. And if you don't feel like that person heard you or really listened, then I would tell another adult. And I think school counselors are such a good resource. Maybe you don't feel comfortable talking about these things with a parent, but maybe you have a school counselor or a teacher that you do really trust at your school. Find someone that you feel like will listen to you. Maybe even your friends. I know people that have told their friends and have gotten a lot of help just from talking to their friends and their friends have had ideas of who they could turn to to help them out. Just know that this happens a lot and um, you're not alone. There's a lot of resources and people that would love to help you navigate through the hard times. Well, I so appreciate you for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge and wisdom. And this is a big topic and it's super intimidating for uh, yeah. us to cover, but I think that it is so foolish to ignore it and act like it's not there. Absolutely. And so that's really why we wanted to bring this to light and to just ignore situations like this is not helping mm -hmm. anyone. All we can do is educate ourselves and move forward with the knowledge that we have. And hopefully this helps somebody to know what it is they can do to help somebody else or to be a little yep. kinder to somebody else who mm -hmm. is going through something like this. So um, yep. thank you so much. I'm so glad I could talk about such an important topic that we don't really want to talk about or hear about, but is really important to talk about in the day that we live in. Yeah. So we do have a fun little segment that we do at the end of all of our episodes. And I'd still love to ask you, but if you could talk to your teenage self and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? I think I would say that every person around you is going through hard stuff that you know nothing about. So I think it's just important that we try to be as kind as possible to everyone that we interact with. You never know when you're going to be the person in need of help. And I just think kindness, kindness is always key. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. If you are a victim of sexual assault, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 800-656-HOPE. Again, that's 1-800-656-4673 to be connected with a trained staff member from a sexual assault service provider in your area. You will receive confidential support from a trained staff member and they can help you walk through what happened, as well as assist you with local resources and your next steps toward healing and recovery. Please don't wait to reach out to someone you trust or to call this hotline to get help.